cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome creator of Video Watchdog, writer of so many reviews, books, commentaries, and just a great film historian, Tim Lucas. Tim, how are things? Things are uh, pretty good. I mean, with everything that's going on with uh, with COVID-19, my lifestyle hasn't changed all that much. I'm pretty much a shut-in. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't even had to uh, leave the house wearing a mask. I really haven't ventured out much since February. Um, so uh, I'm getting a lot done. So uh, so things are okay with me, if, if not necessarily with people I know. So my fingers are crossed for, for people out there. But, uh, but things are all right for me. Well, I'd like to take you way back. How were you taking in cinema as a youth? Was this a regular occurrence? Uh, fairly regular. Uh, I, I would watch... Uh, I, I first discovered movies through, through television, really. Um, and, uh, had my first movie going experience probably at the age of five or six. Um, and, uh, there was a theater that was not far, uh, from the family that I was living with. And I remember being six at that time. I was with them from the time I was six through eight years old. And, uh, I was able to walk. There was only one major street that I needed to cross, and it was considered safe. And, and in those days, you could let children run wild. Um, and uh, so I would take this this hike on Saturdays, and sometimes both Saturday and Sunday, to see the matinee at the local theater. So I saw a lot of movies that way. I remember that the first movie that I saw by myself was Frankenstein 1970, a revival of that, which would have been around uh, 1962 or three. Were you getting a lot of your movies through like late night television and stuff? Yes, yes, and I, I have to say that um, my my uh, my mother and my grandmother. Um, who were the uh, the principal authority figures in my life, were pretty indulgent if I wanted to stay up late to watch something. They would allow me to camp out in front of the television set with an alarm clock that might be set to go off at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I remember uh, sometimes sleeping through what I intended to watch. I can also remember sometimes waking up with great excitement at 4.30 in the morning and turning on the TV and finding that the movie I wanted to see had already begun because the, the stations were not that precise about when these things would come on. Um, so, yeah, I did a lot of that, especially by the time I got around. Uh, there, well, well, there was always like a 4.30 movie, too. Uh, I believe it was 4.30. Uh, each weekday, and that's where I had my first exposure to universal horror classics and a lot of the AIP films from the uh, from the late 50s, like I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and I Was a Teenage Werewolf and um, movies like I, I Bury the Living with Richard Boone. Uh, there was a huge package of those that would play here, and uh, I remember I also got to see Frankenstein 1970 for the, for the second time uh, on that show, which was called, I think, the Early Home Theater. 
But by the time I got to be around uh, 11 or 12 uh, Sunday, l- late night, like after the news at 1130, uh, was a great place to start seeing films. I remember there was a Sherlock Holmes theater where I got to see all of the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce pictures. And it always began with a little film of, of a man sort of sitting by a fireplace uh, in his in his study. And he would get up and he would go to the bookshelf behind him and he would select uh, a, a Sherlock Holmes story from the shelf. And then they would show the movie. That was very atmospheric. And I remember the first book that I got about, about uh, horror or science fiction films uh, was uh, Ivan Butler's Horror in the Cinema. Um, and the, the last chapter in the book was an entire chapter about Roman Polanski's repulsion, which I'd not seen, but that was the first extensive piece of film criticism and analysis that I'd ever read. And I read it multiple times. And, and then that movie happened to come along on the, on the late show, the Sunday night late show one night. And I remember watching it and feeling as if I had already seen it, um, but it was it was a great discovery for me anyway. So that gives you an idea of what what it was like for me then. Well, after you started noticing uh, that film criticism, did you uh, actively search out more and more film criticism after that? Um, not not really. I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I was picking up books about cinema once I discovered that such things existed. Um, the first one I bought was the uh, Hitchcock Truffaut book which is a great, a great book to start with. It sort of lays down the, the ground rules of what a director does and what he achieves by accumulating a filmography. But uh, there wasn't a lot of in-depth criticism about, about horror films. The closest thing that we had to it really was Castle of Frankenstein magazine, which uh, would only really offer thumbnails but those thumbnails were so rare that they were like nuggets of gold and opened up whole new worlds to me, not, not just horror films, but like Orson Welles films and Max O'Fool's films and uh, uh, Sam Fuller movies. I mean, they would actually have a pretty wide net that they cast around the, the whole idea of genre cinema and cult cinema. Um, so I learned an awful lot from that. And even now, I don't particularly read a lot of film criticism um, because I don't like uh, my own thinking to uh, to get lost. I mean, primarily when I write film criticism, I, I do it to have a sort of dialogue with myself, strange as that sounds. But I don't really know what I think of a picture until I write about it at some length. Well, what kind of a role did drive-ins play in your youth? Oh, drive-ins were were big. I mean, uh, uh, my mother had a car, and uh, she had a job that kept her busy through the week, so I was kept with uh, other families during this this period, like foster families. And she would pick me up on Fridays and uh, take me to her apartment, and we would always go out to a drive-in on either Friday or Saturday night. And that's where I remember seeing King Kong versus Godzilla and Pit in the Pendulum, uh, Panic in Year Zero, which I remember was, was uh, before that movie opened, we were given a leaflet as we bought our tickets at, at, the, uh, at the entrance. 
and the movie was announced as End of the World, which I think is even the name of the novelization that came out. But the title was changed at the very last minute to Panic in Year Zero. To this day, I mean, I have warm and fuzzy feelings about going to the to the drive-in because my mother would pick me up, and it was it was like my home, you know, it was like my real home. And uh, once she picked me up, she would take me to a local drugstore of one of one, where there were two principal drive-ins we went to, and they both had nearby pharmacies that sold comic books. So. I would go and I would pick up comic books. And then when we got to the theater, I would get in the back seat and change into my pajamas and read my comic books until the movie came on. So uh, that was just my, my favorite thing to do in the world. And then I had a whole other group of memories in the early 1970s when, when uh, my friends and I would go to the drive-in and, uh, and see you know, much more extreme movies than I, than I did in my childhood. Um, but I, I still love, you know, concession stand movies and I will put them on just for the sheer nostalgia of it. Nothing, nothing touches me so deeply as, as some of those concession stand ads. Well, when you started in on the fanzines in the high school newspaper, what types of films were you reviewing? Oh, that's a very strange thing. I mean, I I was not aware of the, um, dichotomy myself when I was in school, but uh, they did allow me to uh, to write film reviews for the high school paper. And the things that I found myself re- reviewing were El Topo, uh, <laughs> Ken Russell's The Devils, <laughs> A Clockwork Orange, you know, and I wasn't technically old enough to see any of these movies. Nobody ever asked me what that was about and why was I recommending, you know, X-rated movies as they were at that time. Uh, to a high school audience. Uh, but believe it or not, I got away with it. Nobody nobody ever called me on it. And uh, I just wish that I had that archive material today. Um, I, I've only been able to, uh, to find the first and one of the last issues of the school paper that, uh, that I wrote for. And I also did a comic strip for a while that was called Captain Norwood, uh, sort of superhero spoof. I went to Norwood High School. And uh, the uh, the talk of the school was was when I did the uh, the episode of Captain Norwood in which he revealed his secret identity to be Fred, our janitor. Uh, so Fred got a lot of attention from girls, and uh, it was funny to uh, to see. There was a picture in our in our high school yearbook uh, that year with all of these uh, girls, I guess, at, at homecoming. Who were who were posed around Fred like he was some kind of celebrity? So, so that was a nice thing. Uh, it it had its, its advantages for Fred. It, it's funny because I was also I was inspired by you, honestly, in high school, and I was writing about stuff like Jess Franco. I, I I was getting in trouble for some of my reviews that I was posting to a high school audience, but oh my goodness. I guess they're wise to us now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you were accepted into the uh, Cine Fantastique, were you given complete control of your voice or were they trying to steer you in a certain direction? Uh, No, they never steered me in a direction. Uh, There were times when they just cut me off. Um, I, uh, for example, when I was doing... um, 
the stories of, about David Cronenberg's work. When I was on the set and I'd been there for uh, Videodrome in the Dead Zone, after I'd done Videodrome, I, I, they told me that uh, they didn't want me to review the Dead Zone once I'd covered the film because they felt that I was becoming too personally close to uh, Cronenberg and his people and that I wouldn't be giving it you know, a strong review. And, and the, the ironic thing about that is that uh, The Dead Zone wasn't really one of my favorite Cronenberg films at that time. And I would have given it a harsher review than the person who ended up reviewing that film for them. Um, but there was another case, too, with a, an earlier picture that was, um, I think it was an earlier picture. It was uh, Toby Hooper's film, Eaten Alive. Um, I wrote a very positive review of that film, and Fred Clark, the editor of the magazine, decided not to run it because he heard it wasn't good. Um, so he would actually decide on what to run, you know, based on rumors that he heard about, you know, how good or how bad something was, which is weird because Cinefantastique had a long run of issues with cover stories on pretty weak movies and that almost became a, a joke among among the readership that you know they would have call the conqueror or, or something like that on the cover when they could have put a real blockbuster on the cover um yeah wasn't even like caveman on the cover at one point yes uh-huh. so um no so I, I can't say that he ever really interfered with what i had to say in in the context of of publishing a review of mine um, and he always gave me, I, th I think they were pretty good for the most part about editing my stuff to length because I've, I've always been bad about keeping to a certain word count. When, when, I, when I wrote my, my video drum coverage, um, which ended up being a book length thing, I, they, they cut it down so far that my voice wasn't in it anymore and I took great offense and especially since I was being paid by the word for the work that I'd done and ended up having far fewer words published than, than I should have. Um, so uh, that's, that's how I finally ended up leaving Cinefantastique after like 11 years on their staff. Well, speaking of Videodrome, was that book something that you toyed with for a long time? Or was it something that you came back to and just kind of gathered all the previous writings that you did on it? Um, yeah, uh, actually it was, it was sort of in the drawer for about 25 years. I had written all of that stuff and it was just a matter of going through it and cutting out the inessential material and just adding a little new to it to give it a uh, contemporary perspective. Uh, but not a lot of new work went into it. I, I was very happy that the opportunity came about to finally publish the, the work as it was intended to be seen. Uh, that was uh, Millipede Press, a subsidiary of Centipede Press. Well, when you started to forge your own style of review away from film and directed a little bit more towards video, was this kind of about a necessity? Or did you just want to see these films get the same amount of recognition as what was being played in the cinemas? Well, the odd thing about that is I was writing at the time for a magazine called Video Movies, which later became Video Times. And... We were all asked to review these videotapes that came out. They would send us a bunch of VHS or beta tapes in the mail. 
I began to become more and more aware of how the movies looked on video and how they were being presented, especially if we were looking at something that was pan and scan. People didn't realize what pan and scanning was um, outside the industry for the most part. And I, w- I was noticing that in the magazine itself, they were always reviewing the new releases just on the standpoint of how the movie was. And, you know, it was it was not as if it was on video. It was just like if, as if it was a movie uh, that you would see on video as opposed to in a theater. There was no specific coverage of how the video was done. And so I had a discussion with my editor at that time, Matthew White, and um, he said, okay, we'll try to pursue this. And uh, I started uh, working on something about Hercules because I, I noticed that I had, I had reviewed Hercules uh, for them. And then like within two weeks, I may be getting this backwards. I, I think I saw it on television first and then came a, a, a tape for me to review. And I realized that they both had different openings and that the dialogue between the two was different. And these were, you know, ostensibly the same picture. But what ultimately I found out about it is that Hercules had a couple of different versions because uh, it originally came out here in 1957 or 58. And uh, then it was reissued in 1973 theatrically for a double featuring with Hercules Unchained, its sequel. And at that time, the movie was shortened and redubbed and uh, made made a little more contemporary. So it, it wouldn't seem funny or something, or maybe their contracts with the dubbing people had, had run out. Anyway, it was, it was redone. So I wrote about some of the differences and uh, suggested that maybe there was enough in this for me to undertake a column. And Matt said, kind of a video watchdog. And I said, the video watchdog. And so it became that. I think it started in the October of 1985 issue of Video Times. I think that may have been the first issue of Video Times per se. se. What you were doing with the videos and talking about how they were looking in, would you say that this was a precursor to film preservation as we see it today? Well, there's always been film preservation. um, And it's... It's a many uh, splendored thing, and people approach it differently. I mean, some people just hoard prints. Some people, you know, actually will reconstruct an, an ideal print out of different surviving prints using the best footage available from each uh, source. Um, and then there are there are you know different ways films like that can be stored, but restorate uh, the the kind of reviews that I was doing. Um, did make they did serve to make people more aware of how American versions of films differed from European versions because one of the things I was doing when videotape came in was I would be swapping things with with people here in the United States and with other friends overseas. And so I would get to see uh, different versions of movies. And uh, one, one of the first things I wrote in this vein was an article for Fangoria, which was called The Butchering of Dario Argento, uh, because I realized that almost all of his movies had been butchered to some extent for their American release. 
And he was someone whose work was was being keenly discovered at that time in the wake of uh, of Suspiria, particularly uh, after the initial release of his first movie, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which got a lot of attention. He sort of dropped in popularity and Deep Red, as fine as it was, uh, it wasn't really widely seen. And it was it was badly cut as well uh, into a version that was called The Hatchet Murders. So. I think when people read that and they realized that what they really wanted to see from Argento was the, as extreme as he could be, um, that, that that really did uh, light a wick to something. And uh, people started putting out feelers and doing whatever they needed to do to get the most complete versions of those films that they could. And it started quite an underground movement, which was which was really one of the reasons we ended up launching Video Watchdog as its own magazine, because there was so much happening in the counterculture. Uh, and we wanted to pool as much of that information as we could and uh, and share it with people so they could see the best versions of the stuff that they could. And so, so to that extent, it, in that it made people aware of what was missing, of what didn't look right, what wasn't framed properly, you know, what was badly dubbed. Um, I think all of that became notes that were applied to future instances of restoration. Well, can you take us through the story of Video Watchdog from inception to now being online and the, and the end of the print? Well, let's see. Uh, we started in uh, June of 1990. Uh, and at that time, it was still a column in uh, Gore Zone magazine. It, I, I had originally uh, approached Fangoria to do uh, a video watchdog column for them, and uh, they told me that they were launching their own, quote, best competition in the form of a magazine called Gore Zone, and they said that they would love to have video watchdog in that. So I was with them for their first 20-something issues, and at that point, the workload that was going into Video Watchdog magazine itself just made it really hard to uh, to write a column additionally and also to come up with material that, you know, wasn't going into Video Watchdog because everything I was doing was going into Video Watchdog. And at that time, when we didn't have a lot of outside contributors, I had to write and generate a lot of the material myself. So... Um, it would be, <clears throat> excuse me, it would be pretty uh, intense and, and detailed. Uh, and sometimes uh, I remember the, the one thing that I started doing was uh, an article about the uh, AIP release Bloodbath, which I found out had originated the, with a Yugoslavian thriller called Operation Titian. And it subsequently became two other films. Uh, in television syndication. So I wanted to follow the whole arc of this. Um, and and it ended up becoming like three feature articles in the magazine. And that was only possible because I wasn't writing it for somebody else. Like there was no place an article of that length or that depth could have been published at that time except in video watchdog. So whenever people would would come to me and say, I'd like to write something for you. What are your guidelines? So I would say, my guidelines are follow your obsession to the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I would just let people go and then, then we could talk about cutting back. Um, but uh, the magazine lasted for 27 years. We finally hit a point when uh, 
when the situation with with bookstores and uh, and everything else was just no longer supportive of the magazine, and uh, so we had to uh, to cease publication. Um, we uh, had to file bankruptcy, and uh, because of the rules of bankruptcy, we weren't allowed to discuss it, and we weren't allowed to to publish anything more, which was very distressing to us because we ended with a, a two-part article running only the first part, and we didn't want to end with something that was unfinished. So finally, once, once the bankruptcy went through, uh, we were given permission to uh, look for some sort of income to generate one final issue for our subscribers as a farewell. And so that was done. That was our 184th issue, I believe, and uh, it completed the two-part story. And to some extent, Video Watchdog still continues in the form of my blog, Video Watch Blog, but it's very irregular. I'm trying to make it a more regular thing, but with the audio commentaries that I'm doing now, it's it's really hard to carve out time to focus on anything else um, to that extent. So um, I, I think that is, is the general picture. We, we did, uh, I think we, we started coming out bi-monthly, and then for an equal period, we were monthly. And then we came back to a bi-monthly schedule toward the end. Uh, and went to full color with our 100th issue. And we kept that as a surprise even from our contributors so that they were all surprised when they got that issue in the mail. It was all done, uh, just, just it came out of our home, the, the home that I share with my wife, Donna. She was the art director and publisher. And uh, so while I was usually assembling the next issue, she would be working in a, in a more present tense on the one that had just been finished. So uh, we, we didn't have a lot of time together because whenever my work ended, hers would begin. And when hers ended, mine would begin. Um, but we managed to keep that ball in the air for, for 27 years. I'm very proud of it. Well, as someone who saw firsthand the decline of print media, do you see this, the current state of film in the same regard? Well, it's all having a strangely antisocial effect, isn't it? I mean, if you can't go to a bookstore and browse and pick up your latest issue of whatever you're looking for and then maybe discover something else that might interest you and, uh, you know, have that sort of enrich the whole print industry through your business, um, the same holds true for, for theaters. If people are not going out to see films in theaters that whole social aspect of film going um i think if, if you look at the news these days and see just in general how we've been trained to treat each other um through the popular media uh we're we've become a very anti-social nation you know if not an internation you know it may well be universal by now um so i think the last thing a lot of us want to do is sit in the dark with strangers um, but there was a time when that was a great thing to do and people loved getting together to be scared together or to laugh together. And, uh, you know, now there are also genuine health concerns about being too close to anyone else, which just seems to me a, a sort of ridiculous outgrowth of a situation that was already bad enough. Um, just people who can't seem to agree to let people be and, and to get along. 
Um, so uh, I think I think there's probably a, still a lot of excitement that goes on. I mean, when on the internet, on Facebook, places that I go, I see a lot of excitement about new releases. So people have to generate their own fun. Basically, they have to you know buy these things, these limited editions of movies that come out, these beautiful deluxe box sets. Milk as much fun as they possibly can out of them at home with their own friends and families and create their own experiences but we can't share that we can only do it ourselves and uh, unfortunately with me almost all of the serious viewing i do i do alone um which uh you know is is not at all the i don't think that should really be the goal i think seeing a movie with someone adds an awful lot to what you get out of it because you can you can feel how another person sitting next to you is reacting and I can remember situations when I would go to the movies and see something that I had already seen and not particularly thought too much of. Um, for, for example, uh, John Landis's film, An American Werewolf in London. You know, I, I always thought when I saw that on my own on home video, I thought, well, the, the effects are great. But, you know, as, as a movie, this is just kind of so-so. And it's, I didn't find it funny. Um, but when I saw it in the theater, the audience was very receptive, and so I got more out of it. Um, and so I, I could respect it more in, in hindsight. Um, so I think we've we've lost that, and it does it does worry me about about preservation because if we're not having these communal experiences with movies, if people don't have you know a large support that they put behind something's survival. You know, it may not be preserved, um, and and it really shouldn't be left in the hands of those few people who care about something to to see that it's cared for into the future. Moving to the Mario Baba book, how yeah. how did Scorsese come to be involved in that? Well, we uh, knew that Mario Baba doing a book on Mario Baba was going to be a uh, not the easiest sale. Uh, in the world. So, I mean, we were doing this ourselves, but we had to make back a certain amount of money. Um, and I knew that, well, uh, he had been a, a subscriber of ours since the beginning. And I knew that he was a big fan of Baba's. And so I went to him, we, we approached him through his office and asked him if he would be interested in writing the introduction. And he said, in principle, he was very interested, but he would have to read the manuscript first. So the manuscript was almost done at that time. I think we were just a few months away from completing it. And uh, so once it was ready, we sent it in to him. And then we had to wait for a reply, you know. And then we finally got back his his approval, and uh, and he wrote his uh, wonderful introduction for the book. I also had a forward by Ricardo Freda, which was basically the body of a letter that he sent to me when I tried to contact him and interview him on the telephone about about Baba. And he said, by letter, please, is, is easier for my English. So I told him some of the things I was interested in, and he wrote me this letter back, which served ideally as a sort of uh, forward to the book. So all that worked out very well, and I think uh, I think that, that Marty's attachment to the book did did help it commercially did you get to see uh the baba films when they were first released or did it take a while before you finally started getting getting these prints no it was i i didn't see any mario baba movies as a kid 
Um, for some reason, my, my local neighborhood theater, I, they either didn't show them or I missed them somehow. I mean, I, I've been going back through the newspaper archives and I saw that some of them did play, but for whatever reason, I wasn't aware of it or I just didn't get there. Maybe, maybe I was being punished for some transgression. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, I didn't, I didn't get to see anything. Uh, the first Mario, uh, Mario Baba film that I saw was Black Sabbath, and it was on television. Um, and uh, later, uh, you know, I, as during that period, there was Black Sabbath, and then Black Sunday came along. And then I remember uh, I was already working with the idea in mind of writing a book when uh, Evil Eye, which is now more generally known as The Girl Who Knew Too Much, was shown at a Dayton station, and I actually called up a friend from school who I hadn't spoken to in a couple of years, and uh, who I knew was living in that area. And I said, you know, could I could I possibly come to your place and watch this on your television? It's the only way I have of seeing it. Um, and then there was also a professor uh, at the University of Cincinnati who happened to own a 16 millimeter print of Planet of the Vampires. And that was the first Baba film I was free to watch repeatedly and uh, really study. Um, and uh, another friend of mine was was with the university and arranged for a screening of Danger Diabolic. And I went to that screening and then he brought it to my home. So I was able to watch it once again in my living room. So all of this was was stacking up over a period of time. I also bought my own 16 millimeter print of Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Uh, and then gradually video came in. It's, it's strange that the, that the book took so long to, to write and research, particularly to research, um, because it was, I was dealing with another language that, that I didn't speak and I had to go through the different, different translators and new relationships. It was, it was a very, uh, detailed process and the book the book ended up coming out at the time when it was ready to be received it's it's odd but the book didn't come out until his movies were generally becoming available on home video and i remember that uh it was his movie rabid dogs which had been impounded back in the 70s when he made it and had not been released until sometime in the late 90s uh as uh, as dvd uh, came out as a new format, and a lot of people made the jump from VHS to DVD because of that particular German import, um, because they had become friends, uh, fans of Baba through VHS, and uh, you know suddenly there was obviously a new market for uh, you know offbeat boutique items, you know that we didn't realize, and now and now I think. Uh, because of the the fan press mostly and video watchdog had a lot to do with that there's there's now a market for sergio martino movies and the the movies from all over the world uh not not just italy but but france jean roland films i mean they've all had their own sort of imprint there was a whole series that came out in the uk i believe of these these uh, really plush uh, Jean Roland releases and, and this sort of attention paid to, you know, it, it's actually a much more detailed attention that a lot of established, so-called established Hollywood directors have received. 
there's a real fetishism about these these uh, B movies or these whatever you call them, just fantastic cinema films, I would call them, and uh, and Video Watchdog and uh, and other magazines that came out in our in our in our make uh, did at that time, and it's still going on today as as things keep evolving into Blu-ray. Well, how was the uh, Mario Baba book received in Italy, his home country? Um, they seem to be very proud of it. I mean, I don't have a a wide exposure of, of how things went, but I mean, I did see, well, most movingly of all, I mean, I, I woke up, I, I was, I didn't wake up. I was actually getting ready to go to bed one night and I was checking my mail and there was an email from Lamberto Bava and I opened it up and it was a picture of him and his entire family holding the book. And, you know, my heart just melted. It was it was like really what it was all about. I mean, they were, they were obviously all so proud uh, and that the book was more generous than, than they had expected. They expected just a regular book, not, not a 12 pound <laughs> tome. <laughs> um, and Lamberto wrote me and he said that uh, when he received the book, he opened it to just sort of look through it. And he ended up spending the entire night just paging through it. He said it was it was just a magical experience, and uh, there was also I remember a uh, a broadcast that was done from the uh, Profondo Rosso store that uh, Luigi Cozzi Luigi Cozzi I'm sorry that I forgot that for a moment I'm getting to that age but uh, Luigi uh, was announcing some something to do with the store and he was sitting there with Lamberto and they both had the book in front of them. I don't think they referred to the book specifically, but it was there on the desk in front of them, and they both had their hands on it, and I was moved by that. Uh, and we also did, I remember, a, uh, a live uh, interview, Donna and I did, uh, with, a, uh, with an assembly of, of Italian uh, fans at a, at a convention or some, some sort of a, an activity. And I was told subsequently, even though she didn't persist, participate in the q and a I was told later that Daria Nicolodi had been in the audience so you know that was that was really my only exposure to the attention the book was getting but it was you know a royal share of the attention and I was just very very pleased and very proud of of how much they uh, they took pleasure and, and satisfaction in it when you started getting praise from Tarantino and Guillermo del Toro and the Special Achievement Saturn Award, was this your Oscar-like moment? Or what would you say is the moment that you're most proud of? Um, which moment am I most proud of? Um, that, that's, a hard, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the, receiving the, uh, the Special Achievement Award from the, uh, the Count Dracula Film Society for the... Uh, the Saturn Awards, um, that that actually grew out of the Count Dracula Society, the Saturn Awards. F first of all, it's a gorgeous award, but it was a very serious presentation. Uh, we weren't quite prepared for that, but I remember that Donna and I went out and we we went to a store, you know, to get some some proper apparel for the evening. And I remember we were so delighted when uh, when Donna went in, and we just mentioned that we were there. To re we were going to receive an award in their city that night. And, and they said, oh, you know, an award, you know, and then it's suddenly super service. <laughs> um, they, they pick out just the right 
stuff for you to wear. And for my part, um, I went into uh, a men's store, a men's uh, tailor store, and mentioned this. And usually it would have been a two-day wait, but since it was an awards ceremony, you know, it was all taken care of within two hours. It was uh, remarkable. Um, but actually being there, and uh, I'm afraid our acceptance speech went on for close to 10 minutes. <laughs> you, can, you can see it on YouTube. Um, and I remember being on the stage and seeing John Voigt in the audience, and there were other people like Lindsay Wagner who were there receiving awards. And uh, when we came off the stage, um, the, uh, the actor who, who played Leland Palmer on Twin Peaks was sitting in a chair backstage, and it was just the sur most surreal moment. We were going <laughs> off the stage to, uh, to go and have our photograph taken with the award. And, uh, and there he was sitting there in a chair looking just like he did on the show. And I, <laughs> and I said, look who it is, you know, and we shook his hand and, uh, passed on into the, uh, in the other room. So it was, it was a very surreal moment. It was a very surreal moment to, uh, to receive the Saturn award and, uh, and to be part of that, that whole evening. There was, uh, Guillermo del Toro was there that evening and we got to, uh, spend time with him. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. And I remember, uh, Guillermo giving me a big hug at the evening. He says, you'll never know how much your work has meant to me. And th so that was, you know, a wonderful memory. Um, but as, as for what I'm most proud of, um, how about, uh, how about 45 years of marriage to the same woman? <laughs> That's what I'm most proud of. Well, your words on Jess Franco have really brought him into a new light. When did your passion for his cinema start? Uh, I discovered, you know, I'm, I'm sure that I saw something by Jess Franco at the drive-in, but I can't remember for the life of me what it was. It may have been 99 Women. And I, I, everything that I read about him, every review that I ever read of his work denigrated him. So I sort of accepted this as the way I should think about Jess Franco. And uh, then I, I happened, uh, this was in the early, uh, or the late 80s, I should say. There was a little supermarket near my house, and we had to stop in there because we were out of milk or something. And uh, when I went into the store, I discovered that they had a backroom video club. And I was expecting, you know, Burt Reynolds movies or whatever, you know, flash dance. But it was all these private screenings releases. It was all of these... Uh, midnight video, uh, uh, wizard video releases, these big box releases of the rats are coming, the werewolves are here. And I thought, oh my God, this is like heaven. And so I immediately joined their, their rental club and took a stack of these things home. And, uh, and one of the things I noticed that they had a lot of, uh, wizard videos with that seemed to be the product of Jess Franco, things like Virgin Among the Living Dead which I'd never heard of. And, uh, and then there was also the loves of Irina from, uh, private screenings, which turned out to be the movie we now know as female vampire. Uh, and, and so these things started to accumulate and I thought, well, I, I should know something about this. So I rented them and I looked at them and I think it was really watching female vampire with, 
with a fever. I was I was ill and I was running a fever, but something about my elevated temperature made the movies click. And I started thinking about them, not just as individual films, but how everything that I was watching was stacking up as its own separate entity. And I started taking notes and it all sort of accumulated into that first feature article for Video Watchdog that I wrote called the uh, How to Read a Franco Film. Uh, because I realized that you had to go at these movies from a different place than most movies ask you to. Um, most movies that, that we here in America see particularly, I suppose, because we're, we're, Hollywood is ingrained in us and Hollywood standards are ingrained in us. Things like that movies need to have actors that we know. They need a certain budget. They need to look realistic. They they can't look artificial and they, they have to make narrative sense and they can't be ambiguous. So you have to sort of let go all of these rules to immerse yourself in what Franco was doing. And so I started making notes about the ways that I was finding my way into these things. And some of it had to do with, with music, the music that he used. Some of it had to do with his, his, uh, his way of telling a story very slowly, almost like, like you're asleep or as if you're drugged or as if you're falling asleep, you're entering into a dream state. So that, that essay turned out to be pretty successful. And I'm not quite sure which issue it was in, but I started rewriting it after I knew more about it. And uh, I covered the first, I think the first eight years of his career in a second article that was it was like a rewrite of how to read a Franco film called just Franco's declaration of principles, because the, in those early films, they sort of laid down the rules about what you were going to get in the later work. And actually you could even narrow it down even farther and say that everything that's in his first movie, which was called, uh, Tniemos 18 años, uh, we are now 18, uh, was, was, uh, it's it's basically like a, a map or a plan as to what he would would achieve later in his film career because there's some comedy there are two inquisitive heroines which is something that he would repeat multiple times there's a a little horror episode in there that's actually the very first example of spanish horror i believe um and it was shot in color long before he shot any horror films in color himself it's it's remarkable that he he was creating a universe to work within from his very first film. And uh, I, th I think that that's consistent. You can see all the way through the last movies that he made that he's still referring to other movies in his work for, for specific reasons. Um, so he became really fascinating for me. And you know, I'm, I'm very glad. I'm, I never had the, the pleasure of meeting him, but I did have the pleasure of speaking to him on the telephone once for about half an hour. And uh, when we were first introduced on the telephone, we just laughed uh, for a couple of minutes. And then he said, we should settle down because this is costing money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we enjoyed each other. And, and he mentioned me on a, a television interview that he did that I'm, I'm just delighted by. And, and, and in his very last movie, uh, someone asks him, you know, have, have, you, have you read the, the latest thing that Tim Lucas wrote about you? And he goes, oh, yes, yes. You know, so I'm right there in the last movie that uh, that he had a, a part in. 
uh, which was the re return of the alligator ladies or revenge of the alligator ladies. So I'm, I'm part of that continuum. So he, he's, uh, I don't know, he, he was like a, an uncle from another mother, you know, or something like that. <laughs> he's, he was just uh, an important, very important character in my life and in my in my career. And I, I think that a lot of what I discovered as a result of watching those movies in the early years went into my novel, Throat Sprockets. So in a way, he gave me a universe to work within in a fiction-oriented uh, uh, project. And, uh, and I hadn't been able to make that breakthrough in myself. So you know, so I, I feel indebted to him there also. Because you're doing the commentary tracks for a lot of his films now, are, are you trying to get certain films back into into the light that maybe distributors aren't putting to the forefront? No, I'll, I'll tell you what, what. how that works is I'm usually presented with a list of new acquisitions and uh, the companies that I work with, which are principally Kino Lorber here in the States and... Uh, Arrow Film and Video in the UK. And uh, I've also been doing some work for uh, Via Vision in, in Australia. Uh, those are my principal outlets. Uh, but but Kino Lorber will send me a list of their new acquisitions and say, let us know if, if there are any of these that you're interested in working on. And, uh, you know, I'll check the ones that interest me. And, and, you know, sometimes I will get a surprise call, as I did in the case of of neurosis which is the latest just franco release and say so we we've picked this up you know would you be interested in doing a commentary because they know that if it doesn't have a commentary the sales are going to be less so it's it's become uh, a way of you know helping to give these movies more opportunity for attention you know to give them some sort of detailed accompaniment something that will put them in context and in a movie like neurosis which is also known as the title revenge in the house of usher that's a movie that really does need an explanation because it's a hodgepodge of three different movies um that uh, franco was more or less involved in and, and just had to keep keep remaking another in order to make it a commercial you know, enough to, to release in the eyes of, of the business. It's sort of similar to what I'm discovering Al Adamson went through with, with his movies. I've been looking at this box set from, from Severin film of Al Adamson's pictures. It's like 30 some pictures on 14 discs. And, uh, you can see that they will have like, uh, a movie that he started with, which was actually pretty decent. And then, it was turned into something else in the hope of making it a little more commercial. And it's like, let, let's put John Carradine into this movie to make it a little more commercial. And let's make this a horror picture to make it a little more commercial, even though it was originally, a, you know, a cowboy movie or a, a spy movie. And then in the end, you end up with this piece of really, you know, nonsensical trash, but at least it had some sort of a commercial complexity about it that would draw people to a theater, even if they were then confused, that, you know, confused by it. Um, but, you know, the, the set is actually showing me that in, in, in their original forms, his films were, were usually pretty professionally put together within their means. And so I am gaining a new respect for, for Al Adamson. Um, and I just think it's unfortunate that he was only able to find an audience when his movies had been turned into something else. 
and that people are, you know, who follow him probably do so because, you know, they're making fun of his work on some level or, or, uh, seeing something in his work that wouldn't normally have been there. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a complex story, but, but that, that same thing is, is happening within his filmography has happened, uh, within Franco's. And I think that you see it with, uh, the repertory players that he keeps bringing back to his films. I mean, I don't think that Al Adamson had characters that he would be bringing back. I mean, the Lon Chaney is Groton, you know, uh, in uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Groton is a lot like Morpho <laughs> in, in the Franco films. Um, so I would have been delighted to have Lon Chaney pop up as, as Morpho in a, or, or as, as Groton in a whole series of movies. But that wasn't what Al Adamson was about. Well, do you feel like the response for your commentary tracks are even greater at this point than your writing? Oh, well, you know, the funny thing is, is that I, we never at Video Watchdog got a lot of correspondence. I mean, we, we would get a few notes. We had enough to sustain a letters column over the years, but we didn't get a lot of response to the articles, especially if people liked them. Um, if people uh, had a, a bone they wanted to pick, or, our, our readers would send in additional information rather than compliment, <laughs> because I suppose they're very discerning in their own way. Um, but the, the wonderful thing about uh, doing the audio commentaries is that there's a lot of people out there that review uh, Blu-ray and, and DVD, and so there's always a paragraph set aside for the extras. And uh, the people at DVD Beaver, Gary Twos, um, DVD Drive-In, Mondo Digital, I mean, they're, they're always very kind to, to the work that I do. And uh, thank goodness for that. I mean, I'm, I, I always put forward my, my best effort, and I pre-script everything because I don't want to waste anyone's time uh, with mumbling or repeating something I've already said twice or the things that often happen to commentaries that, that aren't written or that aren't, that aren't produced under stricter control. Um, I know that there's, there's something to be gained from a more conversational audio commentary. Um, but I'm not doing things in partnership with anyone else. So it's best for me. And I think best for my listeners, if I control what I say and dig really deep and actually teach something to myself before I attempt to teach them, um, so I don't quite take it in the manner of, of a lecture. I do prefer to think of it as, as a commentary. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity to look a little deeper into what a movie presents us will, with. And, uh, you know, as I say, I, I try and often do learn, learn more, uh, about uh, what I knew about a film before going in. And there have been opportunities when I've been offered something just because people have thought that I'd be a very good match for it, uh, though I hadn't actually been familiar with the film before. So it was those commentaries turn out to be, you know, an education from the ground up. And, you know, I would never sign off on something or say that I was capable of doing something if if the results I was getting weren't, weren't pleasing to me or weren't teaching me something. Um, so it all seems to be working out. It's uh, I've I've been able to do a commentary in as few as three days. I don't know how that happened, but I I did it. But they they generally take about two weeks for me to produce. Well, has there been anything in contemporary horror that has interested you? 
Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Not much. Um, And the funny thing is, is that uh, because working on commentaries, I'm very, very focused on one movie at a time. And when I'm doing that, I'm not really taking in a lot of other entertainment. You know, like I'll watch a TV series or something like that. But if I'm working on a commentary, I try not to look at other movies or get distracted by anything than than the work that I'm focused on. So in that respect, I end up seeing less. I'm not not really sure the point that I was about to make. I've sort of lost track. But what what was your question again? Just anything in contemporary horror. Has it interested you at all? Contemporary horror. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when I was uh, growing up and seeing all this stuff, it was like filling an empty space in me. And now that space is quite full. And when I do see something new that, that strikes me as being important or original i find myself losing track of the title or not not bearing the name of the director uh not taking it seriously enough to remember it all sort of rolls off my back there's a tendency for it to roll off my back um but there are there are things that i that i've seen and enjoy i like very much what guillermo del toro does you know but again the 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 titles there's what was the, the movie that he did the ghost story uh, Crimson something. Uh, Crimson Peak. Yeah, Crimson Peak. I mean, I love that just as a as an exercise in style. I mean, I, I told him, I said, Guillermo, this is just a tremendous tort, you know, of a movie. It looked like a, a delicacy that you would find in a in a pastry shop. Um, and I know that's not easy. So, you know, I. I I also, uh, I mean, I, I discover things from the past that uh, that I didn't know. I mean, I love focusing on the 1960s, which to me was the most fertile period in movies in my lifetime. And I've also been recently going through a 1920s thing, looking at more movies from the uh, the silent era and uh, discovering that. Uh, there's a very interesting silent film I've just seen um, that was... Uh, done by Richard Oswald, who had, had done the first anthology horror film, uh, which was called Eerie Tales. He also made a film about the magician Cagliostro, uh, who, who could turn uh, uh, coal into gold or, or whatever. He was, he was an alchemist. Just tremendous style. Um, when, I, when I did my audio commentary on The Golem, I started immersing myself more and more in silent pictures. Um, besides the the usual suspects, which I've known for a long time, I, I recently watched uh, F. W. Murnau's Tartuffe, which is not horror, but it's very expressionistic and and just a, a hilarious delight to watch. It's a great entertainment. You know, it's it's almost like like a cartoon. Everything in in the film is so exaggerated that it's that it's cartoonish and it's it's delightful in a way. It, it breaks it breaks the fourth wall which I didn't know the uh, the silent movies had done. So there are always new places to discover, and uh, I find that the most rewarding places to look are, are still in the past. They're not really in the present. 1920s, 1960s, that stuff will never let you down, even the 1970s. Um, but I, I think things got pretty dull around 1980 and uh, really haven't recovered in, in too many ways. Um, outside of maybe 
J-horror. You know, I, I'm interested in J-horror. I'm interested in, in pink movies, you know, and, and obviously what, what Franco and, and his contemporaries were doing in, in Spain in the, the 1970s. Uh, so, yeah, I, I tend to not spend too much time in the present, more time in the past and finding new things there. Have you ever contemplated stepping behind the camera and directing a feature? Um, I did, but I no longer have that dream. I realized that I didn't have the passion for it. I actually had an opportunity to to do that, to make a, a short film. And uh, I wrote a script. And uh, then I decided to pass the opportunity to direct on to someone else. And it didn't go well, so nothing happened with it. And as a result, uh, I realized that I really didn't have the passion to direct. My passion is to write, to create things out of thin air. And uh, it's better for other people to direct. And at this point, uh, none of my screenwriting projects have really flourished. And I think that's because I live in Ohio and people think that if you're not in Los Angeles pursuing this, you're not taking the business or the game seriously. So they don't take me seriously. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people that make films. Nobody ever comes to me and asks me if I have a script. <laughs> um, so, you know, I figure I'll just follow my own uh my own muse and, and continue to write things. Uh, I wrote a script called the man with kaleidoscope eyes about Roger Corman making the script, the, uh, the trip. And it's, it's a, a sort of comedy drama that I wrote with, uh, Charlie Largent. And, uh, it's been, it was immediately, uh, optioned by Joe Dante's Metaluna productions. And he's had it under, uh, contract, you know, for the past 16 years, but for some reason, even though people seem to like the script, nothing's happened with it. So I finally wrote it as a novel, and that'll be coming out early next year. Um, and I think that that may be what I'll do with, with some of my other uh, screenplay projects, things that I've written. There's there's something that I've, I've been wanting to write about uh, Maxfield Parrish. I wanted to write a sort of biopic of Maxfield Parrish and... Uh, that uh, I never found the time to do it, but it may become a novel uh, instead, you know, and then if, if people want to make a movie, you know, they can ask me to write a script or they can write their own script or whatever, but I'll just sit back and collect the, the money from, from optioning the material. I don't, I don't have to be involved in, in making a movie myself, but I actually did. Uh, I was able to go up and direct a short thing. I, I was invited up to, uh, the factory, uh, which is a part of the Douglas Education Center. This is about 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, I directed a scene from my novel, Throat Sprockets, and also a trailer uh, that included scenes from, from other parts of the picture that we didn't film. I think, I think it turned out very well, but, you know, again, not much, not much happened with it. Uh, I know that uh, the producer of the thing, Robert Tunnell, was showing it to people, but nothing happened with it. So, you know, I'm, I'm content to go on and work, work on other things because I'm, I know that the results will always be good when I, when I write something because I won't let it out if it's not, um, 
you have less control when you work in a more communal situation. Well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up? Well, oddly enough, I have five books under contract at the moment to come out within the next year, which is an unusual position to be in. Um, I have uh, two books coming out from Riverdale, Riverdale Avenue Books, uh, which is an imprint by a former agent of mine, Lori Perkins. And she has uh, agreed to bring out my novels, The Only Criminal, which I've been trying to get published for years and years, and also another uh, thing from <laughs> that's been in the drawer uh, called The Art World or The Color of Tears. It may come out under one or the other title. But uh, Color of Tears, Art World, is a science fiction novel and the only criminal is a sort of parody, a Kafkaesque parody, if you can imagine that, of the uh, sort of Fantomas and Judex sort of movies that came out of France uh, with criminals stalking rooftops and, uh, you know, gathering night under their cloaks and marauding in the dark. And uh, except in this case, it's set in a world where there's only one criminal and he's responsible for everything, which I think is what's implicit in all of these films that I've seen. You never see, you know, in in the old days before before Justice League, you never really saw Batman meet any other superhero. He was Gotham City was a very separate thing that he ruled. And I was always very interested in that aspect uh, that everyone inhabited their own world and was supportive. the only hero in it, the only villain in it. Um, and so the, the only criminal is a sort of, uh, it's a dark satire of, of original sin, I think. But anyway, that's, that's coming out from Riverdale Avenue books. And, uh, also I'm, I'm working on another midnight movie monograph for electric Dreamhouse in the UK on and this wouldn't my first was on was on the movie spirits of the dead and this one is going to be on just franco's succubus um the reason I, i've chosen succubus is not that because it's my favorite franco movie because it isn't but it does seem to be a movie that contains all other franco movies so i think it would be kind of redundant of me to try to write a book that would encompass Franco's entire career because Stephen Thrower has done that so superbly well, as has Alain Petit in France. Um, so I don't want to walk in someone else's footsteps. I want to do something original. And so my idea for that is to really examine Succubus in great detail, scene by scene, shot by shot, and sort of disembowel it to show all of the various influences inside every step it takes. I have to ask you now, what is your favorite Franco film? What is my favorite Franco film? Um, at the moment, it might be a movie called Bahia Blanca, <laughs> which which no one has seen, but which is forthcoming on on Blu-ray from from Severn Films. That'll be out uh, fairly soon, I think. Um, that's one of them. Uh, Venus and Furs is one of my favorite ones that more people have seen, although it's not quite really a Franco film. It's it was greatly changed in post-production by American International and their people, as was Succubus, for example. Um, in my research on, on Succubus, I, I d discovered to my complete surprise that the person who's credited with directing it 
was actually one of the women who dubbed the voice of one of the uh, twin fairies in Godzilla versus the Thing. <laughs> so one of those little fairies that sing to Mothra uh, later directed the American version of Succubus. And another thing that uh, that I'm doing uh, is is a project called The Secret Life of the Love Song, or The Secret Life of Love Songs, I should say, which started out a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago by now. Uh, someone invited me to write a story for an anthology of fiction that was based or inspired, based on or inspired by the songs of Nick Cave. And I didn't know much about Nick Cave at the time. Um, but I looked into his work and everything I asked to do had already been taken. So I decided to do a thing that was based on a lecture that he released on CD called The Secret Life of the Love Song. Um, and it was a, a sort of live performance in which he played five songs and then gave told the stories behind them. They were all different kinds of love songs. And so I thought I would take that same premise to write a piece of fiction. And so... As that was coming about, uh, a Facebook friend of mine, Dorothy moskowitz Falarski, who used to be the lead singer in a 1960s group called the United States of America, they made one of my favorite psychedelic recordings of that period, uh, offered to take the, the poems that I'd written as song lyrics and turn these, these things into actual songs. And so for the last couple of years, we've been working together on turning these poems into music working with other musicians we've got we've got gary lucas who worked with captain beefheart and uh and jeff buckley uh we've got Ma mike fornitale who was a lead singer in reformations of the left bank and moby grape um and we've got dorothy who sang with the united states of america and also uh country joe mcdonald's all-stars in the 1970s uh, all working together with me on this thing. And I'm, I'm actually also making my singing debut <laughs> on this thing, which is not something I ever anticipated I would be doing in my career. But uh, it just so happened that I was, I was best placed to do it and cheaper. <laughs> I, was, I was affordable. So, um, but, but the songs have turned out splendidly and we're looking forward to uh, releasing uh, this book, I, I think it'll be before the end of this year. Um, and the music is, is actually in the final stages of being mixed now. Um, so very, very proud and happy of that. I think that that will change people's definition of me in an interesting way. Those, that's what's, what's happening right now. Thank you so much Thank for spending so much some, time for spending some time with me today. Uh, oh, happy to do it. Your writing has your always writing been a go-to for me when delving into film further. So I truly appreciate this chat. I hope everyone uh, keeps your words alive because you have helped keep films alive. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have never read Tim Lucas's writing, I suggest you stop listening to this and go do so. And go look on the back of some of your DVDs and Blu-rays. Because I'm almost positive there's going to be a commentary track there somewhere that you should be listening to. This concludes our broadcast day.